You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is writer and literary critic Jeff Vandermeer. Over his 35-year career, he has published more than a dozen novels, and his nonfiction writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Atlantic, Slate, Salon, and the Washington Post, to name just a few. His genre-defying novels and short stories frequently engage with ecological themes, including climate change, causing the New Yorker to dub him Weird Thoreau. In 2014, Annihilation, the first book in his New York Times best-selling Southern Reach trilogy, won the Nebula and Shirley Jackson Awards for Best Novel. It was adapted into a movie in 2018. His newest novel, Hummingbird Salamander, comes out this week. It follows a security analyst named Jane as she tries to unravel the mystery of a taxidermied extinct hummingbird gifted to her by an eco-terrorist. And it is the topic of our conversation today. Jeff Vandermeer, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thanks for having me. So as I mentioned in the intro, your writing engages heavily with the natural world and environmental themes. How did your interest in ecology develop? I've always been surrounded by a really rich tapestry of the natural non-human world, uh, just by coincidence, I guess. My parents joined the Peace Corps when I was four, and we were in Fiji for like five years uh, in what was really a tropical paradise. Uh, and also my parents, uh, my mom was a biological illustrator at the time, mm. and my dad's a research chemist. And so uh, he was studying rhinoceros beetles, uh, which are invasive there. And so we would go to a lot of natural settings as well in addition to our house being like just a 10 minute walk from the beach. So there was that just being immersed in it. Uh, and then when we came back to the U S after two years uh, in Ithaca, which is actually in a very rich area, I realized later, but at the time when you come from a tropical paradise to a snowbound, it's <laughs> like that, it seems pretty dire, but then moved to Florida uh, and especially North Florida here, where we have one of the most biodiverse landscapes uh, in the world, which I don't think a lot of people realize when it's part of, what's all around you, it naturally becomes part of your interest. But then Annihilation being made into a movie and all that, I started being asked to talk more about environmental issues. And so I began to think more consciously about what I was doing and what I was writing about. You live in Florida, like you said, near the St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge. And you've frequently spoken about the way you draw inspiration from that landscape, a mallard with a broken wing that made its way into Bourne, a lighthouse that is central to the plot of Annihilation and so on. What inspired this book? Where did it start? It always starts with like a central image connected to a character. Uh, and then I don't start writing in earnest until I know what the ending is going to be, even if hmm. the ending changes a lot by the time I get there. Uh, I found otherwise that I get, I, I never finish something if I don't at least have some idea of the ending. But the, the inspiration here was basically twofold. The, the conscious inspiration for this novel and for Dead Astronauts, my previous novel, which is completely different because that's like a phantasmagorical prose poem and this is a an ecological thriller, uh, was, you know, a stay in upstate New York at Hobart and William Smith Colleges where mm. I was talking to environmental classes and they were like, we would like more direct literature uh, about this moment we're going through. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you know, I don't like to be didactic, but are there ways that I can engage more directly? So that's the conscious prompt. And then what I always do is I just think consciously about something and trust my subconscious to do the, the marinating and everything in such a way that I don't write something didactic. So in this case, with the eco thriller with Hummingbird Salamander, you know, I had this image in my head of someone receiving a taxidermy hummingbird, like a, the image of a, a taxidermy hummingbird in this woman's hand. And then everything kind of like expanded out from that. And so, you know, sometimes you'll have the key idea for a story and then nothing accretes around it. But very soon I had this idea of, of this kind of paranoid conspiracy world that she would become uh, enmeshed in once mm. she actually tried to discover why she has been given this by a dead eco uh, activist um, and what that exactly means. And that, of course, means exploring a lot of ecological issues uh, involving directly the anchor of the hummingbird, which is extinct, uh, and the salamander, which is, is something that she is basically tasked with finding uh, and that might also include a clue. So that's basically where it came from. And then, as I always, I just hike and, 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 and walk around and think about the, a novel and, and write down notes and then put them in a, a Word document in chronological order. And when I have about 30,000 words or so, that's when I know it's about time to actually start writing a draft. 
You mentioned a visit to Hobart and William Smith College, and in the very beginning of this book, in the front matter, there's a credit to Dr., I think her name is Megan Brown Smith. Who, uh, Megan Brown, yes. Yes. And she created the descriptions of the, the titular hummingbird and salamander, which are fictitious species, if I understand correctly. Can you tell me about that collaboration, about working with an ecologist on this and and how you sort of got what you needed out of out of that and how she, what she brought to the creative process yeah it was incredibly important um and and it was it, it came about because of being a writer in residence there for a year and also becoming immersed in a totally different ecosystem which kind of like made me aware of environmental issues in a way that oddly enough you know when you're so comfortable with the landscape in an mm-hmm. area sometimes you you miss things because they become mundane to you so it really awakened a lot of things, talking to those classes and then talking to, to Dr. Brown. Uh, she took us out on the research vessel because those lakes up there are big enough that they actually had a research vessel where they were going out. Oh, wow. And I would yeah. Just, yeah, it was amazing. So we had this this uh, this uh, night trip on this research vessel out on Lake Seneca. And, you know, the other thing that sparked me thinking about all this was just the the weird kind of echo of annihilation in that it was an all-women team of scientists uh, on this vessel, right. and that Dr. Megan Brown was doing a lot to really um, encourage uh, women scientists uh, through the under undergrads at the college, and so that I thought was really cool. And then we got to talking about the confluence of of storytelling and nonfiction, and she had been talking, uh, thinking about you know ways in which she can include storytelling in her science classes. Uh, and that led to an interim project called the White Deer Project. There's this weird genetic strain of white deer in that area that seem almost um, mythical when you first see them and you don't realize that they're there. So we did a, a White Deer Project where you we combined uh, writing flash fictions with with research. And then, you know, when it came time to write this novel, I thought, what if the hummingbird and the salamander were actually created by someone else. And I had to react to those details and couldn't change them. Just like if it was a real world creature and what would that mean for the plot? And so Megan created both of those. Um, You know, you don't know what that's going to mean for a a novel in terms of like, how much are you going to use? Am I going to rewrite this even if I don't rewrite the facts? And in actual fact, I was just blown away because uh, the text that you see in the novel is her text. I didn't, I didn't edit it at all which we'll hear in a little bit, I think. So Yeah, exactly. And it, it's actually pretty amazing. So, and I also didn't realize I would use so much of it, but it was so compelling. And I was able to place it in spots where the emotional resonance for the novel is important, including where I finally wound up putting the salamander facts. It became a much larger contribution than I'd even, even imagined. And then when, when Megan read the novel right through it, uh, to also give me just her notes in general, uh, she had a huge impact on some aspects of, uh, how things were expressed in the ending without mm-hmm. giving away any spoilers. Uh, she, she noted unique aspects of the enzymes and hallucinogenic elements connected with the two creatures that actually became plot elements um, that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of. So, so it was pretty, it was pretty amazing all the way around. And I, I'm so glad that she's also going to be involved in, in some of the conversations and some of the events. It's awesome. I think it's one of the, Right. There's that old adage about writing that, you know, you take two characters and you put them up a tree, but there's and, and sort of see what happens or, or whatever. Um, right. And I think there's something really spectacular about doing that with another person who you may not even think fully think of fully as like part of your writing process. It was eye opening to me and, and it, it, it suggested for future novels um, this idea that sometimes maybe research is not the best answer. Maybe some kind of collaboration is because mm-hmm. if I had created the, 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 the hummingbird and salamander, first of all, I probably would have put in details that made them easier to integrate into whatever I thought of as the plot. And, and what creates interest in, in narrative for me is where there's a constraint that makes you come up with something better because you can't work around the constraint. Otherwise you have to incorporate it. And then also, you know, this also expanded outwards so that when it came time uh, to think about the fact checking on wildlife trafficking is, I just gave the novel to John Platt who works for the Center for Biological Diversity's Revelator website. Uh, and said, and he'd done a lot of articles on it. I said, just, you know, just tear this apart for that, you know? And uh, that was much better than going back and doing layered research uh, because he's the expert, you know? So 
So I do a lot of that, uh, a lot more of that lately. And then other things like the fact that Jane, the main character, grew up on a farm while the farm is intentionally kind of dysfunctional and non-typical. So I did some research there, but because it's atypical, because it's supposed to be like a bad example of a farm, it's not like I had to have that kind of detail for that element. Whereas if it was a different kind of novel, I would have, you know, so... I'm really struck by something that you said about how in a in a sort of typical novel where you are approaching it by doing research, you might adapt or fit the research to to your plot and your themes, the sort of way you're writing. Whereas in this sort of collaboration, you are treating it more as a constraint. And that's interesting to me in the light of some of the themes in this in this book and some of your other writing around the way that we look at animals and the environment, the way that we think of them as humans and adapt them to our lives rather than adapting ourselves to the the places that we live in. I just think that's such a, right, like it's it's such a startling contrast. And I wonder if that's something that you thought of as you were sort of going through this process and um, experiencing this sort of change in your, your approach. Absolutely, because um, it's very important that the hummingbird and the salamander have what I would call integrity. Uh, and that the details of their lives are extremely factual. Uh, One thing I explore, and I know you've been reading Authority, is the kind of absurdity and logic of the human brain. And we often think we're acting in logical ways when we're not. And so the one similarity between Authority and a hummingbird salamander, probably the only one, is just simply that, exploring that in the characters. Uh, So I like the idea of the bedrock of the novel being these, you know, if not, I I don't want to imbue it with a nobility, but, but when when Jane describes the the migration path that hummingbird has to go through and all the obstacles and everything. And, and the fact that this still happens and that so many birds make it through, you know, I, I, I find a genuine emotion in that as well. I wanted that research uh, as kind of an anchor uh, that kind of shines out across the novel, which goes to some very dark places. Uh, but for that to be the earnest, the earnest kind of, again, kind of the anchor of bedrock. So you said something a little bit earlier about this sort of fear of writing about the present um, being something that that was sort of necessarily didactic. And I, I think I saw you mention this in some other interviews as well. So I'm curious to hear from you, where do you think we are in this present moment with respect to the sort of themes of this novel and what needs to be said about it that you were trying to capture in this book? Well, you know, again, a book, a book can be in part about solutions, but it can't be totally about solutions. It has to be about characters. Um, And because, again, I don't really believe in the logic of the human mind, especially with regard to how it grapples with something that's abstract and unevenly distributed like climate crisis and, and why we need to grapple with that and understand why we react illogically to it, even in some of our solutions. I think that's one thing that the book is meant to be kind of a laboratory of you know, showing how Savina herself, mm. this person who's supposed an expert, is 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 grappling with it and flailing at times and not finding the right solution, not sure, you know, even in the end if there's the right solution, not sure if there is a solution or one solution. The ending of the book is not ambiguous in terms of resolution, but it is ambiguous about how I hope the reader feels about what 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 they find out. Um, because I often uh, have characters who do or say things that I don't agree with, but that need to be somehow part of the conversation. So it's a, it's a tricky question to answer also right before the book comes out, because usually after a year or so of talking about it and seeing reactions to it, I get a better sense of what the book is about. <laughs> <than it is. laughs> well, so, so maybe I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about what the book was about to me. Um, One of the sort of shadow themes I saw in this book was was around incentives, the way the world is set up, the way that informs how we live in it, and the way those incentives creep into our attempts to enact our ideals when we're not looking. So I was really curious about that part of it, like what incentives you were seeing that were affecting the way that Sylvina approached the world. And that, I mean, I think Jane uncovers some of these through, uh, as she's sort of going through this process of figuring out yeah. who Sylvina is and, and why she might have given her this taxidermied extinct hummingbird. But yeah, I'm kind of curious to have you talk about incentives and how they're compromising the characters in the novel and how they compromise us in our real world. Well, I mean, you can, you can argue as to when things started 
falling apart. I mean, <laughs> you can you can argue it started with the invasion of North America and other places by settlers from Europe. You can argue, you know, Humboldt, Alexander von Humboldt is a naturalist who traveled widely in South America in the 1800s. And he's name checked quite a bit for things like his idea of total nature. But he documented even back then a lot of destruction of the environment that was unsustainable. So you can argue back and forth as to when things went really bad in terms of what you're talking about in terms of incentives. You know, is it the last 50 years of capitalism gone completely hyperdrive? And, and that's really what we're grappling with now in terms of we have this short period to deal with with the consequences of that. At the same time, we need to think in the longer view of what it is that we've been doing that needs to change philosophically. So this, this incentive thing that you're talking about in the novel, I think it's most uh, alluded to through Unitopia, this yeah. kind yeah. of pseudo-utopianistic environmental commune kind of community that Silvina wants to create. And there certainly are aspects of it that aren't touched in the novel on in the novel because they're not important to the plot uh, that I then have kind of expanded on in, in some visuals that will be coming out with the book tour. But by the time Jane gets to it, it's abandoned. And it's clear that it in part became kind of like a tourist attraction. Yeah. And that that in the whole process of trying to create it, compromises were made that made it not be the thing it was supposed to be. Uh, and so does Sylvina learn something from this? Does this factor into her later plans? Does it mean she goes in a totally different direction? I see it as kind of a pivotal moment. And, and I see this in the real world too, where something gets compromised and the people who come out of it are either forever jaded and turn away from it, or they use it as an example of how to rebuild better. Um, and then sometimes also people don't realize that even something compromised, even something that fails, leaves some kind of positive effect on the world. And so capitalism even deforms how we think of activism, because if we're not 100% successful on our bullet points from our management meeting and our mission statement, <laughs> um, then somehow we failed in our environmental mission uh, when sometimes we still get somewhere interesting and useful that, that's a platform for something else. So I think that would be the, the, one, the, the one area where it specifically speaks to that. Um, and then, of course, there's Sylvina's, you know, what is, what is it in Sylvina's psychology that does this kind of Hail Mary thing of, of involving this outside person, you know, what is it in terms of her need to connect beyond the other rational elements that, that leads to that? Yeah, you mentioned Unitopia, and um, although I felt like it was not physically described in this way, it kept making me think of Biosphere 2, because there, there was this great yeah. documentary that I think is on Netflix um, about Biosphere 2, where they talk about the sort of the one that the group of people the guy who founded it had this sort of history of very idealistic and sort of com like communistic right, um, right. endeavors that he was part of there was they there was this like building of an an arc sort of at some point at an earlier point in his history and as it became sort of more and more as biosphere 2 became more and more of a thing so many of those ideals started to unravel. And I think like, sorry, I'm going to spoil a tiny piece of uh, the documentary, but like for me, one of the big twists in this history that I didn't know about is that ultimately Biosphere 2 is sort of, there's a hostile takeover and the person who is installed at the front of it is Steve Bannon of all people. <laughs> yes, I was actually, I think I read about that. <laughs> like that was definitely not a plot twist that I saw coming. No. Um, no, it, Unitopia is definitely supposed to evoke that kind of thing. And it also, um, the actual blueprint is based on uh, Soviet-era uh, utopian communities, um, mm. which you see the blueprints and they all look so authoritarian. <laughs> it's hard to see a utopia in them, <laughs> um, combined with this impulse in the 60s uh, to have like environmental communes, almost all of which you, you, you noted uh, come apart because of egos, uh, because of basically bad men forming them in the first place who 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 then uh prey on their own 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 members basically you know or or, or become power struck uh it, it was fascinating because i was having i had an early uh event that previewed hummingbird salamander and all these people were posting about utopian communities they'd heard of like out in arizona and stuff that were so great and i had to keep 
saying or mentally saying to myself, yes, but that ran aground on this. Yes, but this was actually extremely horrific. Um, so, um, so it's weird how it, it lodges in the in people's minds too. Sometimes without the the baggage, uh, which I find I find quite frankly kind of terrifying. Join KSQD Sunday evening at five and Tuesday morning at six for Sustainability Now, when host Ronnie Lipschitz discusses greening the economy as an essential step on the way to environmental sustainability. The California Green Business Program is a network of local programs helping businesses reduce pollution, save water, conserve energy, and protect human health. Ronnie speaks with Brooke Wright, who manages the Monterey Bay Area Green Business Program, to discuss the goals and benefits of green business and green business certification. That's Sunday from 5 to 6 p.m. and Tuesday from 6 to 7 a.m. here on KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is New York Times bestselling author Jeff Vandermeer, whose new eco-thriller, Hummingbird Salamander, is out this month from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Well, so this next question is brought to you by the fact that I've been reading Das Kapital all 2021, <laughs> but I feel like we're already in that territory a little. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, there's a passage in Hummingbird Salamander that uh, really struck me where Jane is attending this sort of professional security conference mostly to get to New York so she can talk to a taxidermy, taxidermist. As one, uh, as one does. As one know. does. I mean, really. Um, and in the midst of it, she realizes how vacuous her work is at heart. And she sort of narrates, but the system was fixed and I helped to fix it. What I believed was a bulwark or siege defense morphed into the predatory. I allowed systems to flourish without consideration of people. Efficiency, and especially the word proactive, lived in our head, heads always. And that was a vote for me again when I was sort of reading through your other interviews as research, because there's there's a line that you said in an interview where, where the interviewer asked you about sort of efficiency of process, and you said, I'm not a big fan of efficiency when it comes to creative writing. And so I was kind of curious about that word and what it signifies for you in writing and in the context of where it right. appears in this book. The, the thing that I, that I try to do as an overlay in the book, too, is that you know, she, she may have had that revelation at the conference. She may have had that revelation while writing about her experience at the conference. So there's this, also this overlay of where she's writing from when she does this account. You know, I've had a lot of work experience before I became a full-time writer that that made me very jaded. And you probably experienced uh, my autobiography in authority, um, but um, in a weird way, like even a, inheriting an office uh, from a dead coworker that I didn't know was dead uh, with a dead mouse and a plant in <laughs> Uh, but but anyway, so you know, efficiency uh, often doesn't actually mean mean that in in the business world that I work through, uh, for in terms of software consultants and and uh, working for state Florida departments and whatnot uh, on various projects. It it often really more has to do with uh, the appearance of efficiency, the appearance of being logical, uh, and you wind up creating a project that's actually about the illogic again. Mm human being. So, you know, my wife was also experienced this being in the software industry before she retired, where you'd have like the simple example is you wind up with a field uh, in a, in a screen uh, when you're processing a bill or something that that's only there because the person using it needs to have it in that spot, not for any logical reason, but it, it fulfills some psychological requirement. <laughs> so, so there's that with regard to the creative process, it's just that, you know, you're creating something that has all these layers, hopefully that, you know, like building a desk is one thing. It, it'll have a certain amount of imagination and be its own art form. But, you know, it still requires this thought process. It still requires um, your process being the thing that gets you there. So I don't even use like Scribd or whatever that uh, that that software is that helps you organize your chapters. Because I feel like then somebody else's mind, knowing how mm -hmm. software is built, it's built by somebody, is kind of organizing for you or saying these are your options. When I write, it's deeply inefficient. You know, sometimes I'm writing notes on leaves, and the main thing is you learn which leaves are not going to fall apart in your pocket while you're hiking um, if you run out of paper. Sometimes inefficiency is about you spend seven years thinking about a novel and you don't start to write it, and then when you do write it, you make a typographical error in the first paragraph that winds up being essential to the plot. You know I mean? Mm. So I actually put a lot of barriers to being efficient in my way. I, I work in uh, handwritten. I work off of note cards. I uh, appreciate mistakes that occur. Uh, I appreciate actually even losing text. 
Uh, I feel like that has some impact on what happens. Uh, and then out of this accumulation, then you begin to become more, more focused. But again, you know, it's, it's not a business process, you know, business processes should actually be logical, even though they often aren't. Uh, but writing a novel is not, not, not like that. There are several mentions of a pandemic and eventually pandemics in Hummingbird Salamander. And I think I would be remiss in this present moment uh, for not (laughs) mentioning that and not asking you about it at least a little bit. It's part of the atmosphere. And while I think there's, in the book at least, the link between climate change, ecological disturbance, and pandemics isn't isn't made explicit. Mm. It's just sort of like part of the background. They are, of course, connected. And we've been hearing more and more about that this year as we have lived through a pandemic ourselves. So I'm curious for you, because you were writing this during the pandemic, at least in part. How did living through this experience, how has living through this experience that we're still living through, brought on by climate change, affected the way that you've approached this novel? I was still writing and or revising, I think, through May, which is pretty usual given the, the the fact it's coming out in April. So usually there's like a year after you turn it in that the whole process goes through. And then of course I was editing, you know, beyond that after I had my notes from my editor, which is all is just to say that yes, definitely the pandemic got got into into the novel. Uh, and then also a certain amount of paranoia and isolation. Uh, I was very lucky in terms of the writing process that I was writing this kind of novel because I have to admit that on almost all my other writing, I was completely frozen hmm. or I would get frozen because of the news, because of the elections as well, uh, yeah. and then get unfrozen. But it was a cho- it would have been a choppy process. But the fact that Jane, during what seems to be alluded to as a pandemic and also environmental emergencies and societal breakdown, is kind of isolated and in rural areas. Um, and paranoid and having to kind of like inter- being in her mind a lot uh, in the latter part of the novel, uh, and I did write it chronologically, was extremely helpful, oddly enough, <laughs> because I just channeled my own paranoia, my own feelings of unease and stress into it. And so it was oddly therapeutic to be able to, to do that. I don't think I could have finished it otherwise. I was just lucky that it turned out that that's what I was writing at the time. But um, but there's also the issue of distance. So, for example, you'll notice that there's no president's name listed. So there's mm-hmm. no T word in there, which, you know, once you start to get that close in, all these other things come in with that word that destabilize what you're working on and it becomes something else. So I had to find the right distance for the pandemic, too. And for to my mind, you know, it's more or less like the novel starts in our past, moves through our present and then slightly into our future just a little bit. You know, basically that corresponds to Jane being more uh, embedded in her workplace and world and then not being. uh, So that by the time, in my mind, the pandemic really gets going, she's already kind of isolated from the world, which allowed me just by circumstance to allude to the pandemic, to have that looming in, uh, but not have it be the central point of the novel. I'm also very wary sometimes of being too much in the moment. And then therefore not actually being able to say something interesting about the moment and just being topical, which is fine. If, if it had been a topical novel, if that's what I thought it was going to be, then, then that's what it would have been. You would have had all that right in your face, but that wasn't what the novel was ever meant to be. And then I was lucky in that uh, FSG let me edit the novel right up until the time it went to the printers. So there were a couple of little details I was able to tweak or make more general or more specific based on where we were. Uh, in the news cycle to accommodate that and not have it seem out of date. Well, we've been talking very generally about this book for uh, about half an hour. So I think now is a good time to have you read a little bit of it and uh, go ahead and set it up for us first. Let us know what we're going to hear. Yeah. So um, James basically at her workplace, she's a security consultant and she's received this hummingbird uh, from this dead woman. And she's kind of not, you can tell kind of not happy with the, her life. She, there's some things in her past she hasn't really come to grips with either. And so it makes it easier for her to kind of fall into researching this as kind of like an escape. And she does some research on the hummingbird to start uh, kind of clandestine research while she's at work. And so that has her thinking about, you know, her, her job uh, and then her past uh, and then also the facts of the hummingbird. And I should note that all the quotes that are about the hummingbird are text that Dr. Megan Brown wrote, uh, which again, I think is, is quite, quite interesting and fairly unusual for a novel. So 
Were companies, units, or loose, ever-shifting alliances of individuals? Still didn't know. But I'd learned on the farm that animals were not individuals, not persons, but groups. Categories. Mother, father, grandfather told me this every day growing up. It was the most constant, repetitive lesson learned from the grown-ups in my family, in both word and action. This was the way of the world at large, perhaps with more callousness. On the farm, or at least our farm, you respected animals, but they also gave you eggs or milk or meat. Your goats had names, but one day you would slaughter them. You scratched the pigs on the coarse hair of their backs until they grunted with pleasure. You knew their personalities and habits. But then one morning, your father would be helping put them in the back of a stranger's truck, and they'd be gone forever. On top of that, I had a decade of what Sylvina called indoctrination. From raising a daughter who we encouraged to love YouTube videos with cute animals without once thinking about the context or source. Animated movies where birds talked and smiled like people. And maybe the animal was a villain, or maybe not. But it too talked and made faces and in every way tried to be part of the human world. That had distanced me from anything useful I might have known about animals. Something not tested or something foundational where you should seek the exception. Something toxic from the monoculture. Using us when thinking about the environment erases all the different versions of us, Sylvina once wrote. Many indigenous peoples don't think this way. Counterculture doesn't always think this way. So maybe at first the frisson of mystery and intrigue came from reading what I had printed out while idling in the parking garage, doors locked before heading home, alert for every possible employee approaching. Hummingbirds are aesthetic and aerobic extremists, read one site. Their tiny bodies hover akin to flying carpets. Did one just sit by? Hummers evolved high in the Andes Mountains with progressive colonization of lower altitudes and expanded out latitudes, especially in the north, and eventually to the far reaches of Canada and Alaska. They remain restricted to the Americas with the vast majority of the 300-plus species residents of South America. Information isn't story, Sylvina wrote. No animal should be condemned to a summary in an encyclopedia. But all I had was information at first, and a dead bird's body, because that's all she'd given me. The naiad hummingbird is of moderate size, with an especially long migration that delights the most diligent birders across its range. Although difficult to find and observe by humans, the brilliant colors and patterns of the males are adaptations to catch the eye of their mates. I had a large female specimen then, pitch black, no nonsense. They are fine athletes whose stunt repertoire includes backward flight, treading air, and maneuvering precisely in gusty wind, and whose migration between the Pacific Northwest and Argentina equates to several back-to-back ultramarathons. I tried to imagine traveling that far as an adaptation through so many different kinds of terrain. This was an epic journey, and one only allowed due to incredible specializations. The changes a human being would have to undergo to inhabit such spaces, such places without equipment. Wouldn't they change your point of view too? Wouldn't you become someone else? Like many species that have northern skewed ranges for breeding, the naiad hummingbird is a snowbird and migrates closer to the nexus of hummingbirds in South America. It winters in the Andes, where, of course, it is actually summer. Oxygen is limited at these altitudes, as well as during the bird's migration. Nonetheless, the naiad hummingbird maintains extraordinary metabolic rates that are enabled by adaptations to the hemoglobin protein that binds oxygen to iron. These changes to the group are inducible during their migration and winter in the Andes, but are not present during their summers at lower elevations in North America. But it wasn't just the journey, the flowers, the nests, all of it once I had time to really immerse myself, caught up in a way I hadn't expected, not just because of the mystery, but the data after all. Who wouldn't be moved by the details? Maybe it was just me, or maybe it was the flush of the first real intel. Status unknown, last documented observation, British Columbia. Not just rare then, but presumed extinct, last seen in 2007. 
a pang of emotion as if this was a twist, but a twist that you could see coming. And after the pang, it took no time at all. That emotion began to recede from me, couldn't hold on to it, self-inoculation. That month, the southern white rhino and a species of pangolin had gone extinct. Wildfires in five countries meant animals were crawling to the side of roads to beg people speeding by in cars for water. People were poisoning vultures and shooting bats out of the sky, scared of pandemics. To care more meant putting a bullet in your brain. So like many, I had learned to care less. Sylvina called it the fatal adaptation. Alone with my thoughts, this was all unsettling, destabilizing. Excitement, joy, sadness, unease in the briefest period. Even now, I can't truly explain the nexus of that and how it rippled through me. Thank you so much. Oh, sure. I really enjoy that passage, and there's a, there's a line in it, um, information isn't story, which mm. I found fascinating in the context of this book and of your work in general, because it is so grounded in ecological reality. So it always does involve facts and, and data, which, of course, Jane would like, um, <laughs> but also detailed observations about the, the natural world. When you're processing that information and turning it into a story, how do you approach it? And how is it different in a story like this one, where the discovery of that information is really a, a, a sort of integral part of it versus some of your other novels where it's more background? Yeah, well, I'll just um, compare and contrast the, the uh, Hummingbird Salamander and Dead Astronauts, the last uh, novel, because they both came out of the same impulse of talking to these environmental classes, I mean, at least in part. It, it really depends on the level of reality I'm portraying. So Dead Astronauts is phantasmagorical, surreal. It, 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 it kind of flits between realities. Um, I have a, a kind of obligation with like a blue fox character not to get necessarily the facts of foxes right, but the cultural associations we bring to them. So that's a different kind of detail. Uh, in Hummingbird Salamander, I was thrilled at the idea of a thriller <laughs> because I felt like the very fact that the mystery revolves around so much that's environmental would, would energize the exposition. So the exposition becomes clues, red herrings, uh, things that have to be sorted through to get to some kind of truth about the mystery. At the same time that you have, even if it's secondary, Jane's awakening or awareness mm -hmm of environmental issues because she completely hasn't thought about this. She lives in the suburbs in a way where she hasn't had to think about it. She maybe thought about it when she was on the farm and with that kind of upbringing to some extent, uh, but this is the first time she's really had to grapple with it head on. And I think that's the condition of a lot of us. And it's not, um, you know, still, uh, and, and why, again, it's because, you know, climate crisis is unevenly distributed, but, but what that means is just that the information you know, takes on this supercharged quality. And I was, I was thrilled at that idea. I was thrilled at the idea of writing a book where I could directly have put in a paragraph uh, about something environmental and have it integrated with the plot in, in, in that way. And, and that's why I probably haven't written this directed book before is because I was searching for the way to do that uh, without being didactic, without being preachy in a certain way. Yeah. Sylvina, who is the woman who gave Jane the hummingbird and who is sort of alluded to a few times in this passage, she's extremely sensitive to her environment and particularly light and sound. And that sensitivity significantly informs her worldview. Could I ask you to, to talk about that and, and maybe about why you set up this contrast between her and Jane, who, as we saw in this passage, has developed this fatal adaptation, sort of automatic numbness to ecological collapse? Well, I mean, there are a lot of different... Um... Uh, contrast between them. Like Sylvina, for all of her activism, she still comes from an incredibly wealthy family, which I think also yes. allows her both to imagine and not imagine certain things because of that. And in some ways, I feel like she still doesn't quite escape that. And Jane comes from a very, what you might consider lower class family, although she has all the resources of being on this farm being provided for in some ways. So there's that, which, which I think actually does feed in subtly in the background. So, you know, her sensitivity, Sylvina's sensitivity is, like you said, another contrast with, with Jane. Jane has other kinds of sensitivities in part because of where she works. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's also brings up a point where, where possible, I try to draw on the autobiographical, which is to say that, well, not, although not to the extent that Sylvina does, 
I have sensitivities to light and to sound uh, that I think are actually uh, a plus sometimes. Um, sometimes with regard to rewilding the ravine, that sensitivity has let me know that animals may be experiencing the same thing I'm experiencing that someone else who doesn't have those sensitivities would realize, like including including night lights and whatnot, uh, that really, really are, are incredibly bright LEDs are just very difficult for me. I know they're difficult for a lot of people, but um, but things like that. So I thought that that would be an interesting entry point for Sylvina uh, in a very different way, because it also mimics, again, you know, what I just said, which is to say that we travel through a world where we're not necessarily bothered by the sounds of the world that we've created. Like we either get used to them, you know, like I used to live in a house near a four lane highway and uh, going back there the other day, I, I just was astonished at how loud everything was because living there for 25 years, I had blocked it out. Well, you know, animals may also adapt to this, but they come with certain abilities in terms of their senses that make them more fine tuned, some of them. So for some of them, they're moving through a hell of light and sound that we don't even experience. So I thought it was useful for that reason. And I also was thinking, you know, why, how Sylvina would become radicalized. And I, I always feel like it can, you know, be an intellectual thing that you get you involved and then it lives in your body and viscerally, but sometimes it's because something viscerally happens. Uh, in this case, what happens to her in terms of it, things coming on in her brain, in terms of how she interprets light and sound, Sometimes it's because you literally live next to a sand mine or something mm -hmm. suddenly, you know, like that's something coming up in Tallahassee right now. They want to expand sand mining on the south side of town. So it's actually in a residential neighborhood, which would mean that those residents would experience 24-7 loud vibrations, truck rumbling, in addition to the, the sand, uh, you know, basically the wind taking it into the coating their communities. You know, so, so this is a thing that depending on on where you are and, and how climate change has uh, come to your door, you're already experiencing very viscerally. And I wanted that to be an element of Sabina's um, radicalization. Well, speaking of her radicalization, there's a, there's a line from her in the book that is repeated many times. Uh, we must change to see the world change. And it's, it's reminiscent of the sort of off-sided, but a, apocryphal Gandhi quote, mm -hmm. um, which the way that I've seen it cited is we must be the change we wish to see in the world. But it's also more urgent than that, right? It's about changing ourselves, changing our behavior, not so much embodying change that is sort of happening around us. So tell me about that line and, and what sort of struck you about it, why you brought it in and what you're trying to convey. Well, I mean, it, it's kind of, um, it's kind of uh, apologetic to my own condition, which is to say that I feel that for a long time there were things I didn't see. Hmm. Uh, and that I was, was had blinders on about various things. And it's not about like suddenly becoming part of paranoid conspiracy <laughs> theories. It's just that simply, unfortunately, because of capitalism being the way it is, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that we don't always see that does, that's absolutely horrifying in terms of how things get done. And, and so some of that I didn't see. Some of that my workplace actually revealed to me over time uh, with state and federal contracts. But you know, there, there came a moment like three years ago where I suddenly started researching native plants, which is separate from the novel in a sense, but it, it, it's part of how the landscape came alive to me. Because once you start studying native plants, then you basically start studying things like indigenous land management before the settlers came hmm. uh, and, and things like that. And so it opens up all kinds of social and cultural things as well that you may have like, you know, read an article about. But then suddenly you're dealing with a plant in your backyard that you realize is something that's natural, but also has been part of an ongoing human intervention on the landscape in a positive way. And then the landscape when you're hiking uh, comes alive. So I used to hike and be disappointed if I didn't see a mammal or a bird, <laughs> you know, of note. And now it's like everything around me is of interest. Like it's almost overwhelming. So there's that aspect of feeling like my own environmentalism has become more complete uh, because of that study and because of other things and thinking about how that would transfer into the novel. And I think that's really what Sylvina is, is saying is that there are so many things we don't notice. In fact, the part of Unitopia that is actually from my own lectures is the long quote uh, that, that's attributed to Sylvina or whoever created that part of Unitopia about how if we could see the world in a different way, if we could see through the layers of it, if we could see all of the natural processes that are going on that we're breaking the links to, 
would we then break those links? I mean, if we were so connected to it that it was painful to see those links broken, um, would we still do the things we do? Is it simply because in part we are not connected enough to the world? Uh, and that's where the salamander comes in too, because you know, yeah. the hummingbird, and the salamander are so different. The hummingbird suffers attrition because of its long migration. You know, maybe some of the aspects of its diet in terms of how development wipes that out, uh, plants out, but the salamander actually breathes it in through its skin. You know, the salamander doesn't really travel that far, uh, but it's so susceptible. It's breathing in pollutants into its skin. You know, if, if we were that susceptible, would we keep doing it? You know, even though we are that susceptible, we just, it's so slow motion or we acclimate to the point of like, oh, now 40% of people in the world have cancer. I wonder how that happened. I read that that figure recently and it was shocking to me. Yeah, but we acclimate to it. It's like, oh, this is just, it's not, this is how the world is. People get cancer, not, oh, we have crap tons of microplastics in our systems and all kinds of pollutants to the point where if you were to do an autopsy on a person from 300 years ago and one now, you might be like, what happened, you know? Um, so, so that's also why, you know, the, the animals are very carefully chosen, even though they're also organic, because, you know, I have a connection to sal- salamanders and hummingbirds personally as well, so... There's nothing like a Grateful Dead concert, and there's nothing like the Grateful Dead Zone. Host Eric Nelson assembles the ultimate dead concert, a make-believe psychedelic ballroom, with two sets of dead music, each song taken from a different concert in a different year, selected from the very best of their vast live archive. Whether you're a deadhead or a casual bystander, let there be songs to fill the airwaves on the Grateful Dead Zone, moving to Saturday at noon on April 3rd, only on KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. If you're just joining me, my guest today is New York Times bestselling author Jeff Vandermeer, whose new eco-thriller, Hummingbird Salamander, is out this month from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. What makes this story interesting to you when you're writing it? There has to be some aspect of discovery. So, you know, that, that determines, the kind of novel it is determines whether I even have an outline or not. So like with Hummingbird Salamander, I knew there were these general progressions that were going to possibly occur. I knew there were these characters in play. And the thing I thought was the most important was that even with minor characters, I needed to method act those characters in their point of view. So it wouldn't just be scenes where Jane's getting what she needs at every scene, so more or less. Uh, so, so the discovery for me was in building out even the minor characters uh, in a way that sometimes isn't required, frankly, for a novel, depending on what you're writing, like Dead Astronauts, it doesn't doesn't even that I don't even know what a minor character is in that book, but uh, but here it was very important. So I know a lot about the inner lives of like Fusk, the taxidermist, even though he's only in a few scenes, um, and so that brought an element of discovery uh, in terms of Jane moving through this this kind of uh, exploration of the mystery. Um, but basically, it's just simply that the interiority of this book is such that there were things I didn't want to know until Jane encountered them. Uh, so there were aspects of the mystery where a scene that I wrote would completely change what's going forward to some degree. And what I do in that aspect is, you know, I talk about the endings. Usually uh, there's three or four different possibilities for how something can end based on what you have presented up to that point. Uh, and so I just think about what are the variables. And, you know, sometimes you have to scrap everything uh, and come back to it, you know, fresh, but but usually that's, that's what works. And then by the time you get to the end, you realize what ending makes the most sense. So... So there's that sense of discovery too. I mean, without going into detail, um, it was just as much of a revelation for me in some ways to write the final scenes of this book as it is for Jane to discover what she discovers. Um, and then other things happened, like there's a there are some time jumps <laughs> without going into detail again about <laughs> where I thought for sure she would find things earlier, but in actual fact, things happened to get in the way of that. I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. The oh, ending. yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, and so I, I actually thought, you know, the ending would be much sooner than it actually was, but it didn't actually make sense for also the world beyond the novel in a weird way. Yeah. You do a lot of research for your books, so I assume that you are reading a lot of nonfiction when you do that. What do you read fiction-wise? What are you reading now? <laughs> well, I'm reading Alexander Kleeman's uh, latest novel, which is out in August. Um, and I, I'm afraid I, the n- name escapes me, but it's coming out in August and it has uh, an absolutely scathing satire of bottled water and the fetishism of it with this new project called Water Without the, without the Vowels in it. Um, it's 
like water, but slightly better, but seems to have this odd effect. And it, it involves this guy going out to Hollywood to see uh, how his movie, the movie based on his book is being made. Um, as you see in the backdrop, this kind of ecological collapse encroaching on the novel. And I'm halfway through this novel and I, I really think it's a brilliant novel on climate change, but it's also so funny and so satirical. And it's such a great balance to see that along with the psychological reality of the characters. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that coming out. Um, but mostly what I read is, you know, because my wife and I do so many fantasy and science fiction anthologies, I mostly read uh, what you might call contemporary literary fiction uh, with maybe some surreal aspect or slight <laughs> weirdness to it. Um, I, I must admit that I, I can't really do like the slice of life relationship novel. Um, mm-hmm. That's not really my thing, but but any little tweak, tweak or quirk on that, uh, and, and I'm in there. So, um, and, and eccentric characters are fine with me, so. Can you talk about upcoming projects? Yes. Um, in addition to Hummingbird uh, Salamander this year, in September, uh, Drawn and Quarterly is going to put out uh, Secret Life, uh, which is an adaptation of a short story of mine set in an office building where a vine from a houseplant uh, that someone brings in gradually takes over the building. Hmm. And uh, Theo Ellsworth, I just handed the story to him. He's this this, this amazing artist uh, who also does comics. And I, I just handed the story to him. I said, does this look like something that would be of interest? And then basically what happened is he handed me back a draft of the graphic novel that he had storyboarded in his head and just like drawn out. And it was perfect. <laughs> and I was like thinking there, there would be a step where I would have to write a script, which I hate doing and all this other stuff. But he just somehow is such a genius he just did it all in his head and it was perfect and um, it's actually better than the short story i think i think he leaves a lot more room for certain things uh visually that that, that makes sense and, and i'm really looking forward to having that come out well a lot to look forward to for us too jeff vandermeer thank you so much for joining me today oh thank you for having me to learn more about jeff or order a copy of his book visit jeffvandermeer.com Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. Join me next month for a conversation with the Pushcart Prize-nominated writer Muriel Leung about her forthcoming poetry collection, Imagine Us the Swarm. Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote a theme.